from Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing. With trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now from Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Good morning, everybody. I'm John Forsyth, the vicar at St Jude's, and I pretend, uh, extend a very warm welcome to you. If you are joining us online and this is not your normal church, or if you are visiting us for the first time, we are delighted that you can be with us, and we just wish uh, that it could be in person. Well, in uncertain times, we can trust in the God of sovereign grace. The times are certainly uncertain, but our God is always sovereign and always full of grace. At St Jude's we have been preaching through Romans chapters 9 to 11 and in this section as we've, we've gone throughout the weeks we finally now come to the end of this extraordinary set of verses what Paul has been doing is addressing a really live issue in the church in Rome. If Israel are God's chosen and promised and covenantal people, why are so many of them apparently cut off from their Saviour and the Messiah, the Lord Jesus? Has God been faithful to his promises? Does his word hold true? And what Paul does in the following chapters in 9 to 11 is answer that question, explaining why God's word hasn't failed and, that is, uh, and explains that even though Israel as a whole are not turning to Christ, God is still sovereignly at work. And three things have been become clear, I think, as we've looked at these verses together. First of all, it is that God's sovereign, uh, divine sovereignty is absolutely foundational. 
God's grace is sovereign grace. He will choose whom he will choose. And if God's grace is not sovereign grace, it's not saving grace. Grace is the same for Jew and for Gentile. Secondly, we've also seen an intention with that first point that human beings are responsible. Israel is responsible for her own sinfulness and failure to respond. And as we've read, us Gentiles are in far less a better position. And thirdly, this tension, I think, is really hard for us to get our heads around. You see, what the Bible teaches in these chapters is both challenging and consoling. It is complex as well as comforting. As we've pondered God's astonishing sovereign grace and our terrible human sin, no doubt questions that you had have been answered. But I'm also certain that you now have new questions that are unanswered. A polite way of saying it might be that Romans 9 to 11 leaves us confused, but at a deeper level. So friends, how then are we to respond to one of the most profound and difficult theological discussions in Scripture? Well, Paul's answer in these verses might surprise you. Paul's answer is to sing. That's right, to sing. Paul finishes this section with a hymn in praise of the sovereign Lord for his purposes and plans. In uncertain times, we cannot just trust, but indeed praise and sing to the God of sovereign grace. See, what we have here at the end of this section is what is called a doxology, which comes from two words in the original language, doxa, which means glory or splendor or grandeur, and logos, which refers to the spoken word. And notice the very first word of this doxology, this praise, this hymn, is the word, oh, It's a passionate exclamation, an emotional outburst of awe. It's when you are overwhelmed with such solemn wonder that you can't keep it in. It's that sense of awe you get when you see an astonishing fireworks display or, or a breathtaking sunset or a towering mountain range. And it takes your breath away and you say, oh. It's when you see something so big and grand and powerful that it makes you feel small and insignificant. Because awe actually occurs when we recognize a gap. A gap between ourselves and the thing that we are beholding. And Paul is so struck by the sheer enormity and terrifying beauty of God's sovereign grace 
and how far he is from that reality that his heart worships God in awe. And so we have this awe-full song. That's where the phrase originally comes from. It doesn't mean terrible. It means something that is full of awe. And as Paul is filled with awe, he focuses on three aspects of our amazing God. Three aspects which mean that in uncertain times we can trust in the God of sovereign grace. Firstly, in verse 33, Paul worships God for his extraordinary wisdom. And what Paul does is give three exclamations of God's extraordinary wisdom. In fact, we have three sections, and each of those three sections, there are three subsections. It's beautifully crafted by Paul. And Paul begins, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. Like the, the older translation, how inscrutable his judgments. You cannot scrute them. And his paths are beyond tracing out. Well, what's the difference there between wisdom and knowledge? Well, sometimes in the scriptures, those two words are used interchangeably. But more generally speaking, knowledge is an awareness of facts. Whereas wisdom is the awareness of how to use those facts for good purposes. Example, knowledge is knowing that if you put arsenic in coffee, it will kill you. And wisdom is knowing not to put it in the vicar's coffee. That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And at the simplest fact, Paul, uh, a level, Paul is saying that God's knowledge is unfathomably and richly deep. Forget Google says Paul, forget Google, God knows all recorded facts. And in fact, he knows vastly more than that. God knows all events in a cosmic level. All the events that happen on earth and in the atmosphere and in the farthest reaches of space and time in every galaxy and star and planet. And God knows every event at a microscopic level. The level of molecules and atoms, of protons and electrons, of neutrons and quarks and string theory. And God knows all their movements and every location of every single particle in the universe at every single nanosecond of time. And not only that, but God knows all the events that happen in our own hearts and minds. He knows our thoughts and our choices and our feelings and our anxieties and our secrets. So rich is God's knowledge that he knows every event that has ever happened and that will ever happen at every level of existence. Physical, 
mental, spiritual. And ultimately, the deepest riches of God's wisdom are revealed to us in his plan for salvation. That is where we ultimately see God's wisdom displayed. His plan for salvation for both Jew and Gentile. His plan to build his kingdom so that the entire universe will give glory to him. That is where we see God's wisdom most clearly and richly displayed. And of course, this wisdom is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29, says these words, Jesus Christ, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. In other words, we lift our hearts in praise to God for his wisdom, most perfectly displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul continues to focus on the richness of God's wisdom and his plan for salvation in the very next verse. God's judgments are unsearchable, says Paul, and his paths beyond tracing out. In other words, God's sovereign grace, his providential control of salvation history it is so huge and it's so astonishing that although we can catch a, a tiny glimpse of them, ultimately it lies beyond our human understanding. It crashes our hard drive. We get the spinning rainbow wheel. Well, how then, friends, do we respond? How then are we to worship a God who is so far beyond our, our comprehension? Well, friends, the great and wonderful news is we are not left to work it out for ourselves. It is not guesswork. God has revealed himself to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his word, the scriptures. See, our worship of God, our praise of God is a response to revelation. Our God has revealed himself to us. And what this means is that, that true worship, true praise, true singing of our hearts to God does not come from just meditation in general, but through meditation on the scriptures in particular. See, friends, this is why the Bible, the scriptures, must be at the center of all of our praise and worship, for they reveal God's terrific and astonishing salvation plan. They reveal who God is. And how we are to respond. Equally, friends, there should be no teaching or study of God's word that does not lead to us worshipping God. As we've seen in Romans, Paul doesn't just teach or study a doctrinal truth without immediately turning to praise the God who has given it to him. The Bible is not just something to be known or even just applied, 
it should actually transform our hearts in praise of God. It should lead us to sing, to sing in worship. It is, friends, God's word. And we must always allow ourselves to feel its transforming and glorifying power, to be in awe of it. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Well, secondly, Paul worships God for his exclusive sovereignty. This is verses 34 and verse 35. And I have a little bit of a riddle for you. And uh, because we're online, we can, we can kind of do this uh, sort of in real time. So I'm going to give a riddle. And if you think you know the answer to the riddle, you can put it in the chat. And I can't see the chat, but I'm going to have to go on an honesty system that you got it right. Here's the riddle. Uh, you and I have one. The Queen seldom has one. And God never has one. You and I have one, the Queen seldom has one, and God never has one. Okay, write your answers in the chat. I'll give you, I haven't got any thinking music available to me, so you're going to have to make up your own thinking music. You and I have one, the Queen seldom has one, and God never has one. Well, I'm not sure what answer you've given. Uh, when I asked this question once before, someone suggested a bath was the answer. Uh, I can be very clear, that's, that, that may well be an answer, but it's not the answer. The answer is, of course, a peer or an equal. See, as, as Paul worships God for his exclusive sovereignty in these verses, what he gives us is three rhetorical questions expounding this great truth for us. And I'm just assuming everyone here knows what a rhetorical question is. Verse 34 who has known the mind of the Lord? Second question, or who has been his counsellor? Third question, who has ever given to the Lord that God should repay them? And the answer that we're meant to give each time is no one. In other words, no human being can fully understand what God is doing in the world. No one can give to God in order to get a reward. Now it's sovereign grace. Since God's riches and wisdom and knowledge are so deep, there's nothing we can actually give him that he hasn't already got or tell him that he doesn't already know. In fact, to be honest, it would be arrogant to suggest you could. In other words, God doesn't need a suggestion box. See, friends, it's no wonder then that we are often confused or bewildered or perplexed and amazed at the ways and the judgment of God. It's, it's, it's no surprise then that we are often confused at a deeper level. Because we do not know the mind of the Lord ultimately. We cannot be his counsellor. We haven't given him anything which means he can repay us. 
See, friends, what this means is our response in worship must always be from a position of humility. I think many people feel they cannot believe in God, let alone trust and worship him, unless they can understand everything about him. Or or at least everything they want to know about him. But when you think about it, the God that you can fully understand is not a particularly impressive God. The God that you can fully understand is not a particularly impressive God. Now, as many of you know, I love uh, peanut butter sandwiches uh, for lunch. Uh, It's what I have uh, most days. Now, if I were to go to a fancy restaurant, back in the days where you could go to fancy restaurants, uh, I'm going there hoping that the chef is better than me and not just serving a a fine selection of peanut butter sandwiches. Don't get me wrong, I'd be very excited by the peanut butter sandwiches, but I wouldn't be very impressed with the chef. Friends, how much more then when it comes to the God of the universe. The God I can fully understand is not a particularly impressive God. In in fact, that would mean that God would be as impressive as me, which, let's be frank, is not that impressive. Friends, worshipping in humility is recognising that the God of the Bible is far bigger than us far bigger than us. But because God is exclusively supreme, he is the all-knowing, the all-powerful, the almighty, and the all-loving, what this means is that even we can know what he has revealed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, it means that our response can be nothing other than awe and humble trust and worship. See, friends, in uncertain times, we can trust the God of sovereign grace. For who has known the mind of the the Lord, who has been his counsellor, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Well, thirdly, Paul worships God, uh, uh, God for his eternal supremacy. And we see this in verse 36. And once again, there are three statements here. And three statements on the absolute glory of God. God is the source of all things, for from him. God is the sustainer of all things, and through him. And God is the goal of all things, and for him are all things. All things are created by God, and all things are moving towards his purpose and goal. The infinite heights are his. The infinite depths are his. God is the foundation and the destination of all things. 
They are shaped according to his purpose and plans. There is no explanation beneath God. No matter how deep you go, there is only God. No one has made God. Nothing existed before God. He is the last explanation. Whether you go down in causes or go up in purposes, what you find in both directions is the sovereign Lord of the universe. To him be the glory forever. Amen. See, God's glory, what what it means there is literally God's heaviness, his his weightiness, his honor and praise, his utter godness, the thing that separates him from all creation. What Augustine calls brilliant celebrity with praise. Brilliant celebrity with praise. That is the glory of God. And the reality is that no matter how big our brains are, our concepts of God are always too small. Let me say that again. Our concept of God is always too small. Because it doesn't matter how smart we are, or how long you've been a Christian, or how big your brain is, or how much scripture you've memorized, or how many theological degrees that you have, we simply, simply cannot comprehend the awe-filled almightiness of God. We cannot control God. We, We cannot manipulate God. We cannot bargain with God. And friends, the simple reality is we cannot even come face to face with God in his glory or approach him without fear of death. In Exodus 33, Moses, who had found favor, who had found grace in God's eyes, asks to see God in all of his glory. And God says to him, you cannot see my face and live. And and so Moses is kind of hidden and shoved in the cleft of a rock and God covers him. And so Moses can only uh, glimpse the smallest amount of God's glory. And yet he is shaken to his very core. In Revelation 1.8, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. God is the sovereign almighty. Therefore, in uncertain times, there is no one better to trust than the God of sovereign grace. See, friends, true praise and worship comes to the degree that we see our weakness and our helplessness and complete dependence upon our sovereign God. Notice that the doctrine that leads Paul to the greatest joy and praise is the doctrine of God's complete sovereignty in salvation. We have never given God anything. He owes us nothing. Friends, yet in Christ, 
he has given us everything. So let your heart sing in awe. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his pass beyond all tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.